0: friends. Welcome back to Impact in the Classroom, where we tackle those big topics in education. I'm your host, Marnetta Larimer. We've had episodes where we discussed inequity. We've had episodes where we talked about supporting children with disabilities. Today, we're exploring the intersectionality of the two. What does the education system feel like for families of color who have children that have IEPs? We're joined by Advocate Cheryl Poe, Executive Director of Advocating for Kids which is an advocacy organization in Virginia Beach. Cheryl, welcome. Thank
1: you. Hi. Thank you for having me here today.
0: I know. I'm looking forward to this episode. To start off, we hear this word a lot, right? Advocacy. I want to make sure that we are centered for our conversation. So Cheryl, can you tell us what is an advocate?
1: Okay. So in the industry of special education, there are advocates. And we are individuals that are usually very well versed on what the federal regulations and requirements are for students with disabilities we understand how the laws are supposed to be implemented in our schools so that our children with disabilities can have access to what's called a free and appropriate education so an advocate is someone who fights with the family and help we support families in getting the services supports evaluations that they need so that their neurodivergent child can be very successful and, and do wonderful things in life. Um, so we also provide training. A lot of advocates also train their clients as they're going through the processes. Because let's face it, if you're a neurodivergent like myself, you are a lifelong neurodivergent. So if you're you know a, a parent and you're starting to advocate for your child and they're in elementary school, you really, you really need to understand that that's going to be something that you're going to have to do until they graduate. And then even in college, sometimes they need, need, need supports. So the more that the family understands about the processes, about the responsibilities and organization and responsibilities and obligations of the school district, then the better outcomes that we hope our children will have. So an advocate is somebody who really helps families access resources so that their neurodivergent child can be successful.
0: Thank you so much for that. So this isn't where you started, right? <laughs> There's a whole no. story, a whole story <laughs> behind it. So tell us yeah. about your story and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah. So I, I didn't know what an advocate was either. So <laughs> those, those that are, are listening, I, I, was, I was in the club with you, right? Like, what is a special education advocate? And even though I was a neurodivergent growing up and received supports and services, you you kind of forget about it after a while. And when I was having, when I got into a relationship, was married and decided, okay, let's have some kids, (laughs) my oldest son um, had some difficulties. He, He did meet his milestones for speech very early on. He had some issues with touch and texture. So he received OT early on, like an early infant STEM. And then, you know, we were vigilant. So he really did well. And then when we entered into the public school system, some of the other traits of what we know now is autism started to kind of show in school settings. And I um, really struggled with how the IEP team treated me and viewed me as a Black woman, as a Black mother. I experienced racism, my family experienced racism. Um, My son was receiving speech and language therapy services because he still had some expressive language difficulties, right? He still wasn't clearly articulating to the milestone that he should be. And even with that being true, the speech pathologist wanted to discontinue his speech and language therapy services that he was receiving in school. And her rationale for that was because I was speaking Black English to him at home and I was confusing my son. So when we were at home away from, I guess, people, I somehow all of a sudden lost my ability to communicate effectively, I guess. I don't know. And she she used my Blackness as a way to weaponize my son's true inability to form the muscles in his mouth to articulate the words and the sounds of letters correctly. And that, that hurt. That, that hurt in a way that even 20 years later, the sting isn't nearly as bad as it was. But it still hurt. It still hurts the idea that professionals in our educational system feel comfortable telling Black women that our Blackness is the cause of our children not being able to thrive. And it's disgusting. And it hurt. Another part of it was, was, you know, my my husband's white. So, I mean, like, I'm a dark-skinned Black woman. And my husband's white. And you look at my kids, you can... See, there was some mixture there. So her rationale of "I was speaking Black English to my to my son at home, which is why he wasn't able to articulate or pronounce words" was in, a bigger insult, right? Mm-hmm. So I just got angry. I'm I'm from Jersey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really am right outside Philly, and it took everything not to jump across the table, right? Just sprinkle little like chick. <laughs> But I, I use, I really did use that hurt because, you know, I, I say that I'm angry, but my feelings were hurt. I was hurt. I was devastated. I I don't believe that I experienced that kind of in your face overt racism before. You know, I mean, that that's mm-hmm. pretty bold. So I really didn't know what to do with that other than to be angry. Um, but I used all of that energy To learn every single thing i could about my rights as a parent under special education i um joined every group because this is before facebook groups right i'm I'm dating myself (laughs) you know we we had google groups i think they were they were called and i did everything that i could possibly do and learn and surround myself in anything special ed i was in post-grad school at the time too and I was going to be, my goal was to become a licensed professional counselor. I was getting my 2,000 or 4,000 hours of supervision from another licensed professional counselor who happened to work in a different school district, right? So I was sharing with her some of my struggles Mm -hmm. and she gave me so many resources and insights on what was supposed to happen versus what was really happening. And then once I was able to kind of feel more stable and comfortable and confident about understanding what the process was supposed to be, I was truly able to advocate for my child. Now, they still tried me and I did have to file complaints, but I was very successful in those complaints. I wasn't scared. I filed due process complaints against the district at times when they forgot to provide services. You know, so I I did all of the things that you know, we have to do sometimes to ensure that our children are successful. And after I got to a space where I was like, you know what? You know, if I'm experiencing this and I have the privilege and the resources that I have to to get in there and fight for my child and make sure that that they're getting what they need, I I just couldn't imagine what it was like for other parents. I just that either don't have the personality like I have which is a personality of no I'm going to investigate this and I don't believe it I'm not, you know I'm <laughs> that but then you know also having the educational background and uh, fortunately having enough of a financial stability in my home that I could change my trajectory of wanting to become an LPC a licensed professional counselor and instead tackling the special education issue and that's how I became a special education advocate I I've been, you know, doing it for um, my oldest is in his his 20s, is mid 20s now and or almost late 20s. I hate to say that. his birthday, September 1st. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've been doing it for a while and, and just watching the intersectionality issues within special education, IEPs, IDEA, just watching them grow and become bigger and, and, And becoming, they're very much ignored. And I, within the last couple of years, well, I I will be honest, Every since George Floyd, I really, really, really have uh, focused more of my energy in making sure that the Black community is not holding on to old myths about what special education services are or what disabilities are because that, that old mindset prevents us from moving forward and getting the actual services and supports that we need so we can stop the school-to-prison pipeline, so we can ensure that our children are graduating on time with diplomas that will allow them to be you know, functional and, and, and get jobs or go to college or, or, or live independently. So that's my story. That's how I became a special education advocate. I come from a perspective of a parent, Right. A lot of the advocates that are out there come from education, right? They were former educators. They got out of it because they themselves saw that the system was broke. But I think when you experience it from a parent side, it's, it's, it's a different kind of experience because of the emotions that you have with it. And, and also being a neurodivergent myself, I really can connect. Um, especially with some of my ADHD clients, mm-hmm. I can really, really connect with their thinking and, and how they process information or or how they may make a decision to do something that may not be the best. and may get in trouble, but I get that thinking and, and I feel like I can help them. I can help bridge that. I get this and this is why I get it. But when we do this, this is a better outcome. And these are the reasons. So, um, that's that's my story and, and I'm here. So this is what I do. I love my work. I love knowing that just giving information to people, information that's out there yes. can help them better support their children. I mean, it's a
0: wonderful feeling. You said something um that stuck out to me. I mean, there were lots of things that you were saying. You know, I was just envisioning my own journey with, you know, my youngest child, you know, who had to go through that IEP process and just the struggle to get services, but also like the right services. You mentioned something about, you know, ensuring that our community has, you know, diplomas, right? And that their future success depends on this. And, but it really Mm -hmm. starts at the beginning and making sure that, you know, they get all the resources. We identify what's happening and they have all the support and resources in order for them to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So I had read the 2022 Bellwether Report titled Ignored, Punished, and Underserved. Have you read Mm that? Yes, Dr. Bell? It looks. Yes, I actually had an opportunity to uh, to interview him,
1: (laughs) and he was doing a a research. And uh, some of my clients, I was able to to send them to him for the research that he was looking at around the suspensions, expulsions of black students with uh, that are neurodivergent. Yeah,
0: I love. Yes. So this report looked at the experiences of black students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. Researchers found that starting from birth, that those students have a harder time getting resources. And support that they need. Yes. So my question to you would be, you know, we talked about how important identifying, releasing that stigma, really understanding how to dig in and advocate for those supports. What do you wish more people knew about the system?
1: Well, I think I'd like to start with what I wish I knew more people, when I say more people, the Black community understood about what it is to have a disability or a mental health issue. You know, let, let's start with that. If your child is learning differently, if your child's emotions seem big, if, if your child is displaying behaviors or lack of skills, it doesn't mean that they can't get those skills. It just means that this, the, the way that our public education is set up, it is not meant for them, right? I, I want parents to remember that you know there were two laws that allow black one one is brown versus the board of education which allowed black kids to get a public education in white settings predominantly white settings but then we also had the bill the law that came in in the 70s that developed that we built IDA off of of saying students with disabilities have a right to be educated in, in our public system so one of the things is our society needs to shift how they see Black children how they see neurodivergent children. They have value. So I need our community to recognize our children have value, even though they may learn differently. The stigmas need to go. We need to stop using inappropriate terms like MR. You know, I I hear that in the community. I confront it in my family all the time. We need to respect the idea that it is okay, right? for your child to be a little energetic. But these are things that we can do to fix it. And it doesn't always have to be medication. I want to break that old, the old myths, the old stereotypes that that do go back to slavery, right? I mean, it's, it's the idea of, you know, the white America never believed that Black people could learn. And that's why they had the schools that were separate. And that was an issue. So, you know, it's in, in, in embedded like a like a thing in us of thinking that we have to do better. We have to prove ourselves. We need to change that to say that we are enough. Our children are enough, but our children may need help. So what do we need to do? We need to get an evaluation. We need to find out what is it? What is it that's going on in our child's brain? What is it that's going on that's causing our children to need those extra supports? And that's where we start, not being afraid to find out what that is, what those behaviors are. Special, And, and we have to use labels, you know, that, that whole thing, oh, I don't want my child labeled. Let's, let's be clear. It is the language of the process. And special education is not a label anyway. It's a service. And we have eligibility categories. But they don't mean that that's who your child is. A child is an OHI. A child is getting services under OHI, right? The the it's 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 a it's a category for which we understand that my child needs extra help because they're a little bit hyper, or they like to daydream, or they're not reading on grade level. If we have an SLD. So for me, I think it's breaking down the language barriers that scare our community. Understanding that those language, that the terminology is the key of getting the services and supports that you need so your child can be successful. And, and there's something called twice exceptional that exists too, right? That's when your child is both has a disability, but they're also gifted. Their IQs over what? One, was it 115? An IQ over 115? You know, anything 116, 17, to 120? That means your child's gifted in some areas but they can still have a deficit that has a disability and you can still get services for both. And that's one of the things that we need to look at too, not just looking at the weakness, but also identifying, wait a minute, this is child twice exceptional. Prime example, I, I had a, a case, I have to share this. And you know, this, this particular client was adopted. It came from a really rough, rough, rough situation. Definitely had some behavioral issues probably associated with, um, you know, trauma, a lot of trauma in his life. But his IQ was 136, 136. The school ignored that and only focused on the areas of deficits. I was able to get in there and say, people, his IQ is probably higher than most of us in this room. <laughs> this IEP or these services are inappropriate for me. He's bored. He's acting out because he's bored. He can do this stuff. And like a- acknowledging both the strengths and the weakness together in developing a plan that moves our children forward. So those are some of the the big pieces that I hope people hear in our community.
0: As an advocate, do you also because there's also because of how the system, right, whatever, whether it be the healthcare system, right, mm-hmm. school system, looks at our children, right, and with that adultification, right, like, oh, yes. <laughs> right, the same behaviors in a white child is. Deemed differently in a black child, they're expected to be older, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. Do you also advocate to support people with misdiagnoses, right? Because it's not just of about the resources and stuff, yes. but sometimes, yes. right? Mm-hmm. There's a mismatch of what's happening. So, how do you support to make sure you know people are like what? What does that look like? How do you support people in making sure they have the right diagnosis for yes. this?
1: When I take on a case, one of the first things I do is I ask, I get copies of all the evaluations, whether it be from a doctor, a private doctor, or from the schools, and I look at it and I look at the IP. Um, I, I just finished up on a on a case like that where, uh, and 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 I'm going to say this: this is, you know, this this sense of, you know, black teachers will help reduce. Overrepresentation of Black kids in ED or being labeled as ID or even being suspended is a white myth that Black teachers don't have the autonomy within the system to really do what they would need to do to address those issues. So, this is a setting where I was everybody was Black. The parents, the principal, the speech pathologist. I've never met a Black OD before. Everybody was Black <laughs> on the team. This kid was an elementary age kid and I'm looking at his IEP and the mother was concerned about it because she knew he could do more than what they were giving him. And I'm like, wait a minute, you have this child labeled as intell- and intellectually delayed, which is the old, old MR. But he has scores in 100 on his achievement test. How can you have, a, you know, how can you say that this kid's IQ is 56, but on all the achievement tests, he's 100 or above? It made, it, it made no sense. And I remember saying to the team, because I am that advocate, you know, like you all are, are all black people here and you know, there's an issue with misdiagnosis of our black children as ID and you allow this to happen. Shame on you. Shame on you all. And I found it. We reevaluated the child, <laughs> got updated data. The IQ score was not necessary. was not an accurate score at all that they had been servicing the child for for what four years, and we were able to you know add the SLD had specific learning disabilities in specific areas. So I mean, when I find it, I am annoyed, <laughs> but I <laughs> correct it, and then I and then I make sure that I'm meeting with that with that parent to kind of let them know this is what you need to look for moving forward. So that this never happens again. Again, I I, I wholeheartedly believe it's important to give the parents as many resources as possible to continue this journey without an advocate because they need to know they need. I I believe parents are their child's best advocate. I'm just a supplement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I know yeah. when I sat down, like if I, it's you said something earlier that also resonated with me, right? If I did not know any better, right? As an educator, <laughs> right? I know the signs, I knew what to look for. And I remember sitting down at that first IEP meeting and just the stack of papers, right? Getting mm-hmm. given to you, you have to yeah. sign for them, but there's really no explanation as to what that information is, what you're signing. There's no, right? right. It was challenging for me Right, as a person who knows who knows what I know, but I can only imagine those families who may not speak the same language. Like, can right. we talk about that? Exactly.
1: Or, or even families who parents whose education themselves have has been yes. limited. Parents who maybe dropped out of school early on for various reasons, but want better for their children. Right, understanding that 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 the the legal language it's right. tough. It really is. And and you're right. Um, when your English is your second language, it's very difficult in those meetings. Now there are some protections that that are within the law where if English is a second language and you need an interpreter because again the the language in IEP meetings is very dense, very specific, very niche. They have to have a have a, a person there that can interpret it so that you know at least they're able to communicate. Because one of the right. Wait, What you're talking about, one of the hallmarks of of IDA, I had someone look at it once, and I think I think they said over 233 times the word parent is in the law. So one of the key hallmarks of, of SPED-Ed, whether you all know it or not, and that's what anybody listening to this, is parent involvement. Your voice is so important. In fact, in certain states like Virginia, they can't add a service or take off a service unless you, as the parent, sign and give consent. And that's kind of true across the board for certain things like evaluations. You have to sign and give consent. The first time your child is presented with an IEP in other states, you have to sign and agree and give consent. So you have a voice. So when you are unable to communicate with your IEP team because of barriers, cultural barriers, you have a right to have something in place to remove those barriers so that you can understand what's being said and what's being
0: presented to you for your child. Wonderful, thank you so much for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and when you're signing it, it, it's a legal document. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a legal document. I mean, I've in Virginia, I've had
1: situations where I've had to file complaints and even heard back. You know, like okay, you, you know what they developed was inappropriate and was outside the, the realms of what they should do. You file a complaint because you know they forgot to do an aspect of it or refused to do an aspect of it. But then when you, because you signed consent, then you have to deal with explaining why you still gave consent to something that wasn't appropriate for your child. And school districts know that parents don't understand it all. So it puts them in a hard spot to be able then to complain because the response is, well, you you signed consent. You didn't have to sign consent. You didn't have to agree to it. So that, that, that becomes an issue. So my recommendation, my recommendation, my free tip is don't <laughs> sign it if you don't understand it. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. You don't understand it, you don't sign it, and you have them explain it to you over and over and over again until you are comfortable with understanding what it is that they are proposing to add or what it is that they are proposing to take away. And if you don't agree with it, you have options, right? You have options in Virginia, and there's another state that has informed consent for everything. But in Virginia, you have the option of not signing that IEP, sending it back to the IEP team until it gets fixed. Other states, you have the option of disagreeing with it and then using your dispute resolution processes to say, this is why I disagree with it. It's not providing my child with faith. It's not addressing the fact that they're reading on a third grade level and they're in the ninth grade. It doesn't provide me with any idea on how long it's going to take for my child to catch up, even though their IQ is 120, you know, like you just list out all the reasons why what they're presenting is incorrect. And then you go through your dispute resolution processes.
0: Through your experience, has your advocacy work extended to supporting the lack of inclusiveness in the classroom? I think that that you can't
1: be a good advocate and not address the least restrictive environment, which is in from an IEA term, right? The the process terms of inclusion, right? Yeah. Which is making sure that your child is in the with general education teachers and students as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. So that may include having a special education teacher and a general education teacher in a classroom with special education kids, general education kids. That is considered, you know, an inclusion class or a general education class with supports, right? There may be pockets, though, where you might be able to do the inclusion class for math, but your SLD, your specific learning disability, the category, not your label, the category for which you're getting services may be in reading because you're not reading on grade level. So you may need a more restrictive environment, meaning less exposure to general education students to catch up on those specific skills on your IEP role. So yeah, I, I, yeah, LRE, least restrictive environment and inclusion is extremely important because we all know the more exposure you have to neurotypicals, mm-hmm. uh, all the research supports that that is a benefit for a student that has a neural
0: divergency. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So you've given us some really great nuggets throughout this. I think I would like to know, what is your advice for school leaders? Like, what can they do (laughs) to help their teachers understand the law?
1: Oh gosh, that question is so big. I don't even think it can just, okay, I'm going to do my best to um, answer this. It's not the school leaders, it's the system itself. The public education system in Virginia and any other state is broken. It is centered in white supremacy. It's centered in neural typical students. It has not been developed in we, we have to fight, meaning when I say we myself, black and neural divergent, we have to fight to make sure that we're valued in the system. So I don't know. I, I I don't think it starts with a building leader because a building leader is only doing what they're directed to do from a system that, that's already broke. However, if there are opportunities for building leaders to be innovative with addressing and tackling disproportionality of suspensions of Black students with disabilities mm-hmm. or students with disabilities overall, yes, there's there's restorative justice practices those are some things that can be very helpful in building community, building a community in your school environment where it is not about penalizing. It's, it's not that old prison mentality or prison prison mentality of we just punish. We need to move it to where we are healing and teaching our kids. Mm-hmm. If, our, if, our, if our children don't understand the expectations and the norms of the setting, or if they're having a hard time fitting into those norms for setting, punishing them and kicking them out of that setting doesn't teach them jack. Right. We need to identify what is that pocket that's missing in that child's understanding of what is expected of them or is what is expected of them unrealistic based on where they are and who they are. And, and how do we have flexibility? How do we have leaders that actually have the time and the resources to commit to that aspect of the whole child? That's what's missing in our public education. And our public education isn't designed for that. That's why we have so many educators leaving, I think, because they know the system is broke. They know the system isn't doing what the myth is it's supposed to do.
0: I think, from my experience, I have several friends who work in, you know, as sped educators. And some of the challenges, you know, that I've noted visiting their classrooms or just having conversations is, you know, not having the skill set for those specific challenge, I don't even wanna say challenges, but diagnosis, right? Like, um, so would you say that education on some part of that would be a good yeah. idea?
1: Yeah, that's part of the system's failure, right? The It's starting at higher ed. That's why I don't necessarily think it's building level. It's it's higher ed. If higher ed isn't giving our teachers the skills that they need when, so that when they come into the classrooms to hit the ground running, we're gonna to continue to lose teachers, we're going to continue to have the kinds of academic loss, instructional loss that we've been seeing over the past several years. So, of course, training is is helpful, but I don't even know. I mean, and, and all school districts do what personal development training. Right. The problem, what I understand from educators or SPED ED directors, when I'm, when I'm saying to them, I don't understand how this could be happening in a meeting, is they're like, we give them, we give tons of personal development but that's on top of everything else they have to do, right? So it may not be a priority at that time when you are getting that because they just learned how to address the whole science of reading now. Because we're changing, you know, we're changing instruction so much. So I, again, I, I I think it starts at our higher eds, a higher ed departments, making sure that student, uh, teachers are coming out understanding the science and reading and knowing how to teach from that model standpoint and getting away from guessing. I think we need. Uh, more instruction in the higher eds about what disabilities are, how they present themselves, what are their symptoms, how they can be also strengths so that they can learn to really differentiate instruction with, with with a background knowledge of, oh, this disability presents this way. So when I'm developing my lesson plan, I can keep that in mind, especially if I'm in inclusion class or even not in inclusion class. I'm, I, I'm a, a believer that Some of the accommodations and supports and services that students with disabilities get, if the school district did it on a universal matter, they would need IEPs. If every, as soon as a kid got in school, preschool, we started with the science of learning, we provided very explicit, you know, sequential instruction and reading, we would have less kids needing services under SLD because the educational system will already have integrated a way of teaching reading to anybody. You know? I also believe like accommodations that some of our kids get in need, if those were universal kinds of practices in education, we would have less need for 504 plans, less need for IDEA, and 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 more kids would be getting service because you know there's always a group of kids that need the support that aren't getting it. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's, we have to rethink our public education totally. I mean, we, we really, really, really do It's because it is failing our children, especially if you're black and especially if you have a disability and if you're black with a disability, well, you got to fight. I mean, you can get it, you can do it, but you just got to fight. And the black community is used to having to fight things uphill battle. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's our life. <laughs> so this is just one additional layer that we need to start paying attention to if we want change in our society overall.
0: What would your advice be for the system in how they could help parents find a safe, welcome place for their children, right? Like, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. around that and how they can support that? That's such a big question. You <laughs> these
1: big questions. <laughs> so are we talking about my population as a black and rural divergent or are we talking about schools in general? Because I think I have two different answers. Because I think community, okay, I think for community engagement for the Black neurodivergent or just the Black community, it needs to be in the community. I mean, ESSA, which is Every Student Succeeds Act, has funding attached to doing community engagement. Because I believe if our schools were more involved, more aware of the needs, the temperament, the culture, the vibe of the community for whom the kids that they are serving, then there'll be a real connection within the school, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if the school is coming and they are interacting in events where family members are together, having big events, then when the parent comes to the school, it's not just to complain, they would have already developed a relationship and be, hey, Mrs. Smith, I haven't seen you since the last community event that we had, how can I help you? So I, I, you know, it needs to be pushing into our community and it needs, and it need, we don't need white saviors. We don't need white people coming into the community like, oh, we're going to save you and this is what you need to learn. No, we need you to come into the community and learn who we are and then take it back to your school and figure out how you can duplicate some of that, some of that, that sense of community, that sense of connectedness, togetherness. Um, that's, that's, that'll change. I mean, that's, that's what we need because right now it's not that it's like, oh, you do what we say and that's it. Or, oh, we're going to have a spaghetti event and you come and eat. It's, it's not about understanding where the children come from. It's not about understanding the whole child. It's not about understanding their culture, the values, the, the, the priorities. So it's siloed in, in order to bridge, we need to break those silos. We need to, have systems, we have schools, have leadership that truly are authentic about engaging and understanding the Black and disabled community so that they can be, feel like they're part of the community of the schools. Because generally
0: we're not. (laughs) Yeah, so as a parent, a Black parent with beautiful Brown children, Mm -hmm. and I suspect that, Something might be going on, right? Developmentally, what would you tell me as a parent? The first thing that I should do.
1: The first thing you should do is get a notebook out, observe your child, and identify that that what I call that mommy gut. Please trust that. That is invaluable. It is, it is a it's a spiritual gift. Whatever your religious belief is, I believe it's the spiritual gift that we have when we become parents, right? Trust that gut. Then put it on paper or put it somewhere. If it's not on paper, put it in a text. Talk about it to understand and articulate what it is that you're feeling and seeing. So being able to concisely say, "I notice my son walks on his tippy toes, and I notice his brothers and his cousins don't do that. I notice my son won't touch cotton or it responds when I put socks with with thick ridges on them, like." And that doesn't, you know, in comparing it to what's considered neurotypical. So make a list, take it to your pediatrician, tell your pediatrician you want a referral for an evaluation for neurodevelopmental per specialist, or again, when we talk about resources, there aren't a lot of those around, but go to your pediatrician first and try and identify who is the right person you need to see to have this evaluated. That, that is, that is my recommendation. Trust yourself take notes, communicate with your primary care to identify who you should be referred to to follow up on an evaluation. Once you get that evaluation, then take it to the school. Let them know that you suspect your child has a disability. They may want to evaluate. They may accept the evaluation. Now, the reason why I say take it to your doctor first is because even though there is something in the regulations called child fine, which means each school district is responsible for identifying and evaluating and determining eligibility for children that they suspect to have disabilities. However, they don't, do, they do a horrible job with that. I mean, I filed complaints and I filed huge compa- complaints against districts that failed on child find. They, you know, they suspend their child. I, I, I this I just got to share this. This is how bad it is, you know. The child is engaging in all kinds of behaviors. The Parents are saying, I think there's something wrong with my child. The school is suspending the child almost every other day. Parent finally asks for an evaluation. The school's like, oh, we don't have enough data to determine that an evaluation is needed. They're like, well, how about the idea that you're kicking the kid out every other day? Isn't that data? The fact that the child is missing instruction because of something, that's your data to say you need to evaluate your child. So I don't trust the child find system. It, it's not effective. So I always, I mean, to save the parent of going through the stress of, of regulation in, in, that is not implemented in our districts, at least go to your pediatrician first. You have, some, you, have some, you have something behind you that supports you, that helps you then be able to get the school to actually listen to you.
0: I do want to say that, you know, early detection is important, right? So parents don't wait until school age, (laughs) you know, to reach out and (laughs) reach out. You definitely, you know, as you're taking those notes, when they're two, two and a half, three, and you're identifying those things, the sooner the better. So that is also my note because yes, it's important in school, but the sooner they can get resources and support, um, the better the outcome. Very much.
1: So early intervention services. I mean, and and I, I, my, my children got, well, one of them got early intervention services and and it's so much easier to get. (laughs) It is what you're in the school too. So (laughs) yeah, early intervention is, is the most important. And the reason why that is so important is because, you know, you're, you're catching the child very, very, very young. Mm -hmm. So you're putting in interventions and supports and helping train the brain in a way that they can build on. So yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And you are absolutely correct. Earlier intervention is important. Don't wait until school age.
0: Wonderful. This was been amazing, Cheryl. Thank you Thank so you. much. One last thing you want to say to our audience before we go?
1: I think the biggest thing is, yes, you are your child's best advocate and you may need support in ensuring that your child gets what they need and that's okay. The other thing is in the black community, we have to move away from, from myths that aren't true about what it means to be neurodivergent. And we need to trust that we, our community, have the ability to advocate and make sure that our children are successful in our public schools. Yes, we are up against a lot. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. What I'm saying it's gonna be worth it. <laughs> you know, that the outcome will be worth that that fight, that struggle, that that advocacy, that. That determination, that belief in your child.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, yeah, my black sons are worth it. Definitely. Yes. Right. Right, Exactly. <laughs> That's I do yes. Everything I do. Yes. <laughs> Thank you again, Cheryl.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> you can find today's episode and transcript on our website, teachstone.com slash podcasts. And as always, behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together. Thanks, everyone.
1: Thank you to today's team. Marnetta Larimer is our host. Our producers are Isabella Henrickson and me, Megan Cornwell. Editing help is from Castos. You can find Impacting the Classroom on our website at teachdone.com slash podcasts, where you can also listen to our other show, Teaching with Class. Impacting the Classroom is a Teachstone production.